Welcome to the Football Pink podcast, hosted by Roddy Cairns. The Football Pink has a website, magazine and documentary podcast series bringing you long-form stories and nostalgia from across the world of football. Football is full of stories. Especially in the nations where the game was first cradled into its current forum in the 19th century. Some we know well, others we recall occasionally, while some have been forgotten about altogether. This podcast looks at one such story, one that very nearly got left to gather dust in a dark corner of footballing history before being dragged back into the light by a modern star. This is the story of a man who was a footballer, a soldier, a pioneer and a hero. This is the story of Walter Tull. The systemic prejudices he faced were great and largely unchallenged. And yet Tull achieved so much. It all started with Garth Crooks, bizarrely enough. When the player joined Tottenham Hotspur in the summer of 1980, he was lauded as being the first person of colour to play for Spurs in the club's nearly 100-year history. This was a huge moment in Crook's own story, and a chance to write his own piece of history at one of England's best-known clubs. But alas, it wasn't to be, as Crooks himself made a discovery which cast doubt on his place in Spurs' history. Football Pink contributor and history teacher Kirsty McLeod recalls that fateful moment. The story goes that Crooks found himself in the Spurs boardroom one day after training. He decided to have a look around and began poring over collections of old team photographs. He made it all the way back to the squad of 1910, a jumble of stern gazes and boyish grins, resplendent in spurs white flanked by a mustachioed bowler hat wearing officials. It was the bottom row that grabbed his attention. There, a young mixed-race boy sat with his arms folded, legs crossed and hair parted neatly in the middle. The type below identified him as a W. Tull and, in one fell swoop, Crook's notion of himself as a club trailblazer was undone altogether. A number of years later, a little further down the road from the old White Hart Lane, I was sitting with colleagues in an empty classroom planning lessons for the term ahead. Year nine were due to be studying World War I, and we were racking our brains for names, stories, case studies, anything we could draw upon to make a topic that students were all so familiar with just that bit more engaging. Somebody put forward an idea about a guy called Walter Tull. They sketched a brief outline. Local lad turned pro footballer, until George V's ultimatum went ignored on the night of the 4th of August 1914 and everything changed. Tull ticked all the boxes of the type we would normally teach as one of those great figures from history. But I'd never heard of him, nor had most of the department. There were bemused expressions, followed by an awkward pause, and then a unanimous decision to go away and do some digging. It turns out that Tull had a story worth knowing. It began in 1888. Britain basked in imperial and economic dominance, an empire so vast that the sun never set on its colonies, and an industrial revolution that brought unprecedented spikes in urban population and production levels. Tull grew up in comparatively quieter surroundings on the Kentish coast. 
Folkestone, although a port town with international shipping lines, was a predominantly white environment. Here, Tull was raised by a black Barbadian father, whose own father had been a slave, and a white English mother. It seems that his early years were very happy ones. But then, tragedy struck. Suddenly, and within a short space of time, both Tull parents died from separate illnesses. Their six children were abruptly split up. Nine-year-old Walter was sent to the noise and colour and chaos of East London with his older brother Edward, where they were rehomed at the Methodist Children's Home in Bethnal Green. Edward was soon adopted and taken away to live with a family in Glasgow. A distraught Walter sought solace in the orphanage football team. Fast forward a few years and a fresh-faced adolescent Walter Tull swapped concrete playground for the churned-up pitches of the amateur Southern League. He was snapped up by local outfit Clapton FC in a signing dubbed the Catch of the Season by the Football Star publication. Tull's forum at Clapton evidently turned heads, and within a few months he caught the attention of Tottenham Hotspur. Spurs were a club that were going places. Literally. In preparation for their first season playing in the first division, the squad was planning that novel and once most exotic of ideas in early 20th century football, a pre-season tour. In the summer of 1909, Tull joined the Spurs contingent and travelled to South America. The journey took three weeks by train and boat. Once there, he made a near-instant mark by scoring in the club's first game in Argentina, with onlookers including the country's president and other government ministers. The crowd sang Tull's praises. The Buenos Aires Herald reported that he had installed himself as a favourite. Tull was also proving popular among his new teammates. When it came time to return from South America, there was all sorts of entertainment planned to help pass time on the voyage home. One evening there was a fancy dress competition. Legend has it that Tull and another player somehow sneaked a Brazilian parrot on board to add to their costumes as Robinson Crusoe and Man Friday. The pair were rewarded with third place for their efforts. The poor parrot, on the other hand, was presumably left to adapt to the harsh North London climate all alone once the team returned. Back in England... Tull was quickly thrust into the limelight. Football was rapidly becoming a popular spectator sport that drew thousands of fans through the turnstiles every week. Tull was at the epicentre of a newly professionalised game. He was also one of its very few non-white faces. Newspapers christened him Darky Tull. Tull's sporting prowess filled match reports for the season 1909-10. Tull, at times, seemed inclined to play the whole team by himself, wrote one correspondent who watched Spurs' game against Croydon. His mastery of the ball was astonishing. Facing Manchester United, he was described as very good indeed. Yet, scorning supporters often overshadowed games. In October 1909, in a game away to Bristol City, the football star reported how Tull had to contend with sustained vociferous and ferocious racial abuse from a section of home fans. Their language was derided as lower than Billingsgate. Tull nonetheless shone on the pitch. His skill and composure made him the butt of the ignorant partisan. Gradually, the jeers became more of a problem. Tull's teammates began to grumble. There was a feeling that crowd hostility, although directed at Tull, was having an adverse effect on the rest of the squad. Directors saw him as a liability. Around this time, Tull's form unsurprisingly began to drop. 
he slipped to the bench and played out the rest of his Spurs career in the reserves. By 1911, it was time for a fresh start for the seemingly disillusioned Tull. He left Tottenham and joined Northampton Town for what was reported as a substantial fee. There was a Spurs connection at the Cobblers, with former Tottenham player Herbert Chapman occupying the manager's hot seat at the time. Tull thrived in his new surroundings, scoring nine goals in his first 12 games. He would go on to feature a total of 111 times for Northampton, over a three-year spell. Unfortunately, Tull, like so many young men of his generation, found his life turned upside down when World War I broke out. Football was changed forever by the conflict, with entire squads signing up together to fight alongside their teammates in the PALS battalions. Tull wasted no time in enlisting, becoming the first Northampton player to do so. He passed the medical with flying colours and was assigned to the first football battalion, a co-initiative by the Football Association and War Office to encourage fans and players alike to join up. Tull was promoted to Lance Sergeant while still in training. The unit attached to the football battalion set sail for France in November 1915. Tull soon saw the full horrors of war. He fought in the battles of the Somme and Passchendaele, both terribly bloody offences which incurred disastrous losses for Allied forces. Following this, he was granted temporary leave for acute mania, or in today's terms, PTSD. Tull soon returned to the front, and in 1917, so impressed that he was recommended for officer training. This posed an issue for military officials. A hierarchy of race was written deep into the structures of the British Army at the time. The 1914 Manual of Military Law stated that individuals from savage tribes and barbarous races should not participate in wars between civilised states. The officer application process required candidates to state whether they were of pure European descent. All previous applicants had answered in the affirmative. Yet Tull had won many supporters from his time in the trenches. His battalion described him as a strong and capable leader. And so, on 30th of May 1917, the grandson of a slave became Britain's first army officer of colour. But this wasn't the end of his accolades. Later, in January 1918, Tull was recommended for the Military Cross. This was the second highest decoration an officer could receive. Under heavy fire, Tull had led his men safely across the fast-flowing Piave River and stalled a German advance. Not one British troop was harmed. The war would end towards the close of that year. Cruelly, Tull never saw it. On 25th of March 1918, he was shot and killed by a German sniper. Just four years prior, Tull had dazzled fans on the football pitch. Now, like so many of his generation, his body lay unretrieved on a muddied no-man's land. A posthumous military cross never came, nor, as Crook's testimony bears witness, 
did Tull's rightful place in British footballing honours. Tull's story deserves to be told, but it must be told well. A couple of years ago, a black student I taught asked why she only seemed to learn about people of colour as victims in history. Of course, she had a point, and I was taken aback. Textbooks can quickly jump from slavery to segregation and all too easily portray people of colour as passive figures, unable to act or think beyond context of structural oppression. This was never the case, nor was it with Tull. The systemic prejudices he faced were great and largely unchallenged. And yet Tull achieved so much, setting precedents in not one but two fields, a mixed-race professional in England's top domestic league, and a senior-ranking member of the nation's armed forces. His is a story of agency. But it's not just an inspiring tale. Tull's experiences also reveal a lot about the roots of our game. When Crooks joined Spurs in 1980, a number of black and mixed-race players were seen to be breaking into the British football scene. Viv Anderson, Laurie Cunningham, Cyril Regis. Paul Ince became the England national team's first black captain in 1993. These relatively modern developments suggest that diversity in football is a product of the late 20th century. But in fact, diversity has always been woven into the fabric of the sport. Tull played in the professionalised English league shortly after it was first established. Before him, Ghanaian goalkeeper Arthur Wharton featured for teams including Preston North End and Stockport County in a career spanning 1885 to 1902. And, 11 years after its formation as a national side, Andrew Watson became the world's first black internationalist when he turned out for Scotland in 1881. There have always been players and fans of colour in football across the British Isles. Yet Tull's story exposes that our game, from the offset, had a problem with this diversity. It seems an obvious point, but one that is perhaps all the more crucial to make in the current environment, with some complacently believing that racism has never been a British issue. More chillingly, it prompts us to consider how little has changed since Tull's time. We cannot believe that racist abuse at football is some historic wrong spewed forth by the uneducated masses of the 19th century. It exists today, in modern football. We've heard it in the stands. We've seen its worst excesses splurged across social media, with footballers of colour targeted for their skin colour and subjected to hideous slurs and violent language. A Home Office study showed the number of reported hate crimes in professional football games rose by 66% last season. Out of 323 reported crimes, 230 were related to racism. Players and club staff have recalled racial slurs, offensive gestures, online trolling, microaggressions and often an overriding sense that not enough is being done to address underlying issues. It touches every division from grassroots to elite level. Imbril Ghazi, manager of Sporting Bengal United in the Essex League, Shay Logan, Aberdeen defender, and Renee Hector, former player in the Spurs women's side, are just a handful of individuals who have gone public with their experiences, along with many high-profile examples in the Premier League. Supporters of colour have shared similar tales. The current publicity surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement has given football an opportunity to consider just how it has dealt with diversity. Whilst the widespread support of the movement by clubs and competitions has been welcomed, 
The furious backlash by a minority of fans shows there remains a great deal of work to be done in football as in wider society. One small thing that we can all do is to recognise and pass on all of football's diverse stories and remember that there is no single narrative of our game. In this way, we can try to ensure that the Walter Tulls of this world are given their rightful place in history, rather than being hidden away in the corner of an old squad photograph. So let's hear it for Walter Tull. Tottenham Hotspur's first player of colour, the first mixed heritage infantry officer in a regular British Army regiment, and a bloody good footballer. You have been listening to the Football Pink podcast. For more stories like this one, please subscribe to the podcast and visit footballpink.net.